Good evening, everyone. My name is Jim Renacci. I'm chairman of the American Greatness Fund, and this is the America War Room. It's been an unbelievable end of the year and also beginning of the year with so much going on in Washington, D.C. when it comes to a speaker's race, a Congress, and getting our government started. Let's start with some clips. Like uh, Kevin Della McCarthy, Cruz. who is fighting for his speakership, uh, has not McCarthy. received the votes that he needs, that it has failed. Delora. So the question is, where do we go After from two here? Two days and six rounds of votes, the House of Representatives has still not elected a leader. Nearly two dozen Republicans have blocked Congressman Kevin McCarthy from taking the gavel, and there's no ending. Eight votes said no speaker of the House. Republican Kevin McCarthy still doesn't have enough support to take the job, leaving the House of Representatives. Representatives at a standstill. Standoff means the House can't get any work done, effectively sidelining one third of the government. The important numbers haven't changed for McCarthy. He needs 218 votes to become Speaker, but throughout all these roll calls, he hasn't been able to get above 201. It's a 12 round fight here on Capitol Hill, and the world is watching. Speaker wannabe Kevin McCarthy has lasted this far, but his opponents, they're looking for a knockout, Rocky style. As McCarthy fights for his political life, even if he survives, what's happened is this story. No nominee having received the majority of the votes cast, a speaker has not been elected. Honorable Kevin McCarthy of the state of California has received 216. Well, and as we know, early in the morning, Kevin McCarthy finally got the votes needed to become Speaker. But it was a rocky four or five days. Look, I was in Congress. I lived it four times electing a Speaker, but nothing, nothing like this. Uh, so I'm proud to have joining me today, Washington, D.C. correspondent from Real America Voice, Chris Carter, who was covering this from the ground. Chris? Happy that you're with us. Where do we go from here? What are you thinking? Well, thanks for having me on, Jim. It's great to be here. I can tell you as a native Washingtonian, what's happened this past week has been historic. I've never really seen the government in, I think, well, my entire lifetime really debate openly these rules processes. And let me just tell you, you were in Congress on the House Ways and Means Committee, one of the most powerful committees they're fighting over so many different things here. There's a lot of balls in play. There's a lot of things to watch. You know, everything from campaign spending to the balanced budget amendment that's coming up, all the way down to term limits for congressmen. We know that this has been a historic time. And what happens next going forward is really where the American people are going to feel affected. We know President Biden's headed to the border today, but just like everything in his administration, it's more of a, a gaslighting attempt and a smokescreen to try to hide what's really happening. And the action right now is in Congress. Well, you're exactly right, Chris. And, and like I said, I've lived it. Uh, nothing like this. Uh, Kevin pretty much gave up everything, every power and peace that he had, uh, including fundraising, which was kind of interesting. He now has to stay out of fundraising in competitive racings, which is Really interesting when you neuter a speaker 
like they've done here. And as we know, they've taken him down to just one person can now call the chair and ask for a vote to remove the speaker. By the way, we had that when I was in Congress. That's how John Boehner was actually removed. What are your thoughts on that? Well, the speakership through the reign of the gargantuan gavel of Nancy Pelosi grew too strong. Most Americans recognize that. And I think what you see here is when you see a lot of these freshman congressmen, like I think of the Boberts or the MTGs, you know, they get elected from these small towns across America. Take Lauren Boebert, for instance. She represents Western Colorado. That's a really rural area in Colorado. These, these people, they know agriculture and farming. She gets herself into office. She ends up in Washington. She realizes, wow, this is really great, but I'm more of a figurehead. I don't really have a voice to represent those people from Western Colorado. Why is this? Well, the speaker won't let things move forward that they didn't approve of. And this happens through a lot of different processes involved with the House Rules Committee, which is one of the parts they're fighting over right now. And just like you had said, it's the ability to change these rules. It's the ability for one person to throw a wrench into the engine. And that's what a lot of people are con concerned about, because just like you know, the needs of people in, say, Western Colorado aren't exactly like the needs of people in Maine. So that's when the accurate representation from the 435 members of Congress come in and they say this really isn't a representative democracy because if the boss doesn't want to let it go forward, it's never going to happen. And you know from being in Congress, nobody ever wants to be on the wrong side of an issue the way they vote. It gives people a paper trail. Well, you're exactly right. And, and one thing that protected so many people was the, the Rules Committee. And a lot of people don't understand the Rules Committee. It's established. It's controlled by the speaker. He appoints the members on the Rules Committee. And the Rules Committee is who allows what gets to the floor, what doesn't get to the floor. What's interesting, I always tell people, I was part of a bill that had 330-some co-sponsors but never got to the floor because the Rules Committee was able to stop it. The Rules Committee also has one other thing very powerful. And it's interesting. As you said, a lot of these new members, they think they really have garnished some power. Right. But what they're going to find is whatever power they garnish gets shut down when bills get set, sent over to the Senate as well. And what's happening in the Senate is another thing. I mean, covering Washington for so long, what you've realized is a lot of people in the American public, we're living in a time of acceleration. Things are moving fast and they're moving quickly. So Americans know this. You know, every day when I report from Washington, D.C., I have a TV station in my pocket. I can transmit from anywhere. They want to see the government work. They want it to be effective and they want it fast. There's nothing more marquee right now that's affecting the entire nation than what's happening at the border. They know easily they could go back to the Trump era policies, but they're witch hunt and their constant vendetta against anybody affiliated with the Trump organization and the presidency and the administration. You just you have to be stopped no matter what the good is for the American people. And I think they expect to see results. And frankly, as you know, the Senate is a very tumultuous place. And they say about the presidency, that's where presidential aspirations go to die, because in the Senate, you actually have to have a record to move forward. And now how they're taking care of the filibuster and 
how they enact that is a whole complicated process in itself. But where you were in the House, that's like the ground game for the government. Things get started, they get rolling, they get moving, and you have to vote. What people seem so upset about nowadays is they just don't see Congress voting on anything. And when it came through, it would either be because Pelosi was letting it come through or not. You know it. The speaker was too powerful under Pelosi. And that's what people were worried about with the speakership of Kevin McCarthy. Well, you're exactly right. And one of the things that they did get, which I'm happy to see, is the ability to amend bills on the floor. I can tell you the rules in the past did not allow that. In fact, many of them, many were not allowed to amend anything, even in committee. So I'm glad to see that got passed. That will make for a much longer process, a much longer debate. But in the end, I still say what's interesting is all of this is great, but you still have to send things over to the Senate. For instance, you know, a balanced budget amendment. When I was in Congress, we passed that. It went to the Senate and died. When it came to voting for the wall spending, we passed that, went over to the Senate and died. Those are all the things that they got in these negotiations. But I'm, I just don't know if the American people realize this was a fight they put up for votes that we've already had and we've already made that just go to the Senate and die. What are your thoughts there? Well, I have to tell you, the Senate is a scary place to me because you sometimes look at what's happening in there and you go, I don't understand it completely went a different direction. You know, a vote or a bill and the way these bills, they start in committee in the House, you know, and then the Speaker allows them to move forward. Now, what happens in the Senate is an entirely different ball game, And we know Leader McConnell, he is going to be facing a very tough road. Former President Trump is not a fan there's a lot of bad blood on the Hill with McConnell and a lot of these politicians. And it, it doesn't necessarily have to do with anything with McConnell per se personally. But when you're the longest serving senator in history, you're going to have a lot of people that have had discrepancies with things you've done through the years with amendments and bills. What if people don't really seem to to realizes the government and these committees, they're more of an amorphous process. They, they're constantly changing and adjusting to who is in leadership. And I think that's what a lot of these younger Congress people want, is they want a more semblance of the way the founders would uh, have constructed the government, which is policy debate, a voting record, and letting the system handle itself. The most important thing that Congress has, and you know this from being on the House Ways and Means Committee, is the power of the purse. Now, what we're going to see here for the next 10 months until they have to do the new budget, which President Biden just proposed under a $6 trillion, I think, umbrella, is that we're going to have to have this debate. And, and Mitch McConnell, he's got a long road ahead of him because, frankly, President Trump raised all that money and pretty much got him reelected. And those two, they don't seem to be aligning politically. So... There's a lot to be said there. Well, here's what's also, Kristen, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this. Look, at this stage, which is just the first step, it was really the control of the Freedom Caucus as to who became speaker. And, and the Freedom Caucus was really, as you said in one of those clips, trying to knock Kevin McCarthy out. Kevin got in. Now we move forward. We have a rules package, which will have to be voted on tomorrow. There are already some members of the moderate caucus that's made up of 62 members who said, guess what, guys, you might have fought for all this, but we're not going to vote for the rules. 
It's going to be an interesting battle starting tomorrow when the moderate caucus steps into the game, which will probably start tomorrow. And, you know, let's not forget that a lot of these Republicans that are newly sworn into Congress won in these moderate districts that Joe Biden won. So just like you're saying, Jim, how they're going to navigate those waters. Congress in the House is a very complex place. There's a lot of influence. They don't really understand the lobbying game and how that comes into play. A lot of people were concerned about the speakership with McCarthy because of all the ties to the money in Washington, right? A fresh brick face like a, a Byron Donalds or a, you know, a, 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 even a Matt Gates. I mean, I, I like him. I know he's a firebrand, but we really need to shake the system up. And a lot of that starts from the way that policy is debated and the way that these ideas are presented, how they're challenged. The system was designed to flex and bend. So that's what we should do. A lot of people seem concerned about this next fight coming up with the debt ceiling. And I can tell you this, the American people should feel confident in their state legislatures that if the federal government did shut down, the hospital will stay open, the police will still be getting paid, the fire department will show up, your state government will have the electricity on. The world is not gonna come to an end. I mean, President Reagan, when he was president, shut the government down up unforeseen number of times and that was when russia had their nuclear weapons pointed at us so i think we're going to be okay even if there is a shutdown well you're right and what most people don't understand when the government shuts down it really doesn't shut down medicare social security checks everything still goes out the only thing that really gets affected is national parks get shut down your ability to come and go in washington gets shut down but in the long run, the government keeps spending. And the other problem that many people don't realize, and I've tried to talk about this, it's one of the reasons why I left Washington is, look, the biggest drivers of our spending are Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and interest. In fact, we don't bring in enough money already to cover Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and interest. And a lot of these new reps have not figured that out yet. They think we're going to shut this government down. We're going to reduce our spending. But they're going to have to look at the drivers of the debt, and they're going to have to make some tough decisions. What I've said all along, it's going to be interesting to see who is willing to step up and say, well, wait a minute. You know, we spend close to $5 trillion, 4.8, I think it is, in Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, and interest. And yet we only bring in $4 trillion into our treasury. Everybody thinks, well, we can just cut wasteful spending. We can just cut this. We can just cut that. You really got to start taking a real hard look at our spending. And the debt ceiling, the problem with that, and I live that too. I had to vote many, many times. The problem with the debt ceiling is you're raising debt on things that have already been spent and already been approved from last year and the year before. And in the end, you got to get spending under control. And I'm hoping many of these new legislators realize it's a spending problem. It's not a debts problem. It's a spending problem. The debt is just a follow through of all of this spending that's out of control. The spending is really what really, I would say, hurt McCarthy so much because of the $1.7 trillion that was passed. They really just saw this as no pushback from him at all. 
really no open debate about the spending. They dropped a 4,000-page bill on them in the middle of the night. I said to Ed Henry the other day on his morning show, American Sunrise, I said, Ed, you couldn't read the 4,000 pages in a night? You went to college, didn't you? I, I don't think the only thing that could read some of these bills that they put on the floor are computers, and they certainly can't build logical thoughts like humans was saying, hey, we're spending a little bit too much here. The computers will spend the money as long as you'll give it to them. You know, and the thing about Washington is this, too. This is a land of tax and spend Democrats. The motto of House Democrats is why have one when you can have two for twice the price? Exactly right. And I will also tell you what's interesting about that one point seven trillion dollar spending bill. Jim Renacci never voted for a bill that I couldn't read. So I would have voted no on that automatically, automatically. The problem is when you vote no on a bill like that, there are things when I came back home in that bill, like increases for veterans pay, increases for homeless veterans. And I used to get hammered. That's what the new legislators are going to have to realize. I'd come back home and I'd get the veterans saying to me, you didn't vote for my pay increase or you didn't vote for my homeless veterans. And I'd say, wait a minute, wait a minute. I always supported veterans and I always supported that while you didn't there. And that's the other side of that $1.7 trillion spending bill. I would not vote for it because I used to say, if I can't read it, I'm not, I'm not voting for it. But then you get hammered back home. And that's the other thing people are going to have to start realizing back home. You have to start looking at this spending and these Christmas tree bills and say, wait a minute, how do we stop this? How do we stop this spending? And how do we quit? You can't blame a congressman or woman for voting against a $1.7 trillion bill, but then come back home and say, shame on you for not voting for, uh, you know, for veterans spending. And that's what happens. And that's what these new freshmen are going to have to deal with. And really, the amount of money we're talking about now is astonishing. If you look at the tax base, a lot of these Democrats, they say, OK, we want these people coming across the southern border because they're eventually going to pay taxes. People aren't having children. We're running out of people that are supporting these entitlement programs right down the road, like Social Security. That's the argument. But then when you look what these states have to spend to educate the students, uh, pay the hospitals back for their services they're giving for free, uh, things that happen in the jails, uh, don't even get me started in the schools. Most people don't even realize that in a U.S. school, you don't need papers for anything. If a teacher even asks you about your immigration status, they will get fired on the spot. In my area where I live is very affluent county right outside of Washington, D.C., Montgomery County, Maryland. There are estimates that it costs between thirty dollars and $50,000 per student per year. Now, in a state like Maryland, they've now made it mandatory that you have to be in school until you're 18. You can't even leave high school to go run the family business, right? So the problem that you have is this. You have a lot of these young men from the Golden Triangle down there, Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, who come into the U.S. and then they say, okay, well, I'm going to go to high school. I'm really 22, and I read at a fourth grade level in my own native language, and then you try to put these men in with young boys, and it doesn't work, and the taxpayers keep funding and funding and funding, and the scores keep going down and down, and they want to wonder why. Well, the reason is this. In 1970, there were 100 million people in the United States. 
Today in 2023, there's 350 million. The money we're talking about here is staggering and every single American taxpayer should be concerned about it because frankly, they raise as much as they can. It's like the condo board. The fees never go down. <laughs> wow, you're exactly right. Chris, let's talk about though this crazy week and what we have going forward. Let's face it. Um, there's another thing that came out this week that's kind of crazy, and it's that President Biden had his highest approval ratings. Uh, and his approvals seem to be going in a positive direction. Some say it's because of the craziness of the Republican Party. Now, let's face it, the majority of Americans today are not Republicans, they're not Democrats, they're independents. And many of the independents are looking for something that they could say is reasonable. What are your thoughts? You're there, you're on the ground in D.C. Is the Republican Party looking reasonable to that independent? Or what do we need to do to make sure we get what we need done in Washington, which a lot of these 19 members wanted to get done, but at the same time, make sure we're still bringing people in to say, we're the, we're the reasonable party. We are the reasonable party. What are you hearing? What are your thoughts? Well, I think Kevin McCarthy represents that more of a vanilla brand of politics, you know, versus someone like a Marjorie Taylor Greene. So I think he does appeal to the moderate voter. Traditionally, conservatives, you know, we've got personal responsibility, fiscal responsibility. These are the values that our audience and culture identify with. We're Christians. We care about our wallets. We care about the nation's defense, things like that. So McCarthy, I think he's a real bread and butter guy that's going to appeal to that type of moderate but where I think a lot of people are misunderstanding the dissatisfaction with the American electorate now has to do with this time of acceleration that we're coming in, right? So, for instance, nobody really cares about what Title 42 says or does because these people are going to continue to come anyway. The problem is accelerating. And where people are expressing the dissatisfaction with the government is they don't seem to be able to make the right decisions to even keep us safe. Let's not forget right now that the stock market is still very strong. If those markets dip below 30,000, people will start to have a panic attack. And we've listened to all of these different experts from Fed experts to JP Morgan saying that this global recession is coming. Well, they say employment remains steady and the stock markets are very strong, where's the problem? Well, the problem is when you go to fill up your tank, it's $80. The problem is when you look at your property tax bill, it's maxed out and it's only going up. So there just doesn't seem to be any type of relief in sight for the everyday American. But moderately, I think a lot of people are gonna see things start to swing back. And it has to do with law and order, things at the border, having our congressmen actually show up for work. How refreshing was that to see people, even from opposite sides of the aisle, interacting? It's almost like you're forced to deal with a difficult coworker. How many people in the real world have ever had to do that? Well, Chris, you're exactly right. And you know what was interesting? Uh, in the beginning, when the Democrats decided to have proxy voting, the Republicans were 100% against it. As you saw time pass on, the Republicans used it as much as the Democrats. 
and many Republicans were using proxy voting and never going back to Washington, which was a real issue. So I agree with you. I'm glad to see that now Republicans and Democrats are required to go back to Washington and be in that same room together and start working together. I got a lot accomplished, believe it or not, by sitting across from people I disagreed with by just pulling them over a little bit on some of the things we could agree with. And I think that's so important, but you gotta do that face to face. You're not gonna be able to do it proxy voting. So I agree, um, it's a change that I'm glad to see they're gonna be back in the game. But look, there are a lot of tough votes coming up. You mentioned earlier, the debt ceiling. And what they're asking for, this group of 19, and what they've asked McCarthy for is something in return for the debt ceiling. We did that. I mean, again, we're repeating history. John Boehner was not able to raise the debt ceiling unless we got something back from raising the debt ceiling, and he did. The problem is the next time the debt ceiling had to be moved up, uh, John Boehner gave in, uh, uh, Paul Ryan gave in, and it just became an easy move. So I hope we stand our ground, but I also realize it's going to be turmoil. And you talked about the stock market. One of the things that Boehner and Paul Ryan used to say, hey, you guys, we can hold this government hostage, but when the stock market starts to collapse, which it did, um, when we did hold uh, the government hostage, it's interesting to see how those freshmen, new elected officials are going to do when they start to see their constituents say, wait a minute, you're causing problems to my 401k, your problem cause these will be the issues that they've never had to live through before. It'll be interesting to see how they navigate through that. Oh, absolutely. And when most Americans look at their 401ks, I had a discussion with someone about this just the other day. She said to me, do you realize I've lost 30% of my wealth under Joe Biden. This person works very hard as a registered nurse. We know in that industry right now, there's a shortage. They're throwing bonuses at these women. They are stressed and overworked. And there is no uh, shortage of need for them, especially when you see all these people coming in. But she said to me, I've lost a third of my money under him, just doing nothing. And now if the stocks don't hold, uh, there's gonna be some serious questions to be asked. Forget about Sam Bankman Freed, you know, the crypto kid. When people look at that, you know, I know some people last summer remember when these certain mainstream media news anchors were talking about getting into the crypto game at $60,000 a coin. Where are they today? You know, they can afford to lose the money, but the average Joe Schmo can't. And there's two things I've realized covering politics. When you really want to get a hold of somebody, first of all, you hit them in their pockets, okay? They really start paying attention when that happens. And then if you start messing around with the children, and that's what we're seeing in education, in the drug crisis in this country, I think what President Trump said last week was epic. He said, if you put me back into office, I'm gonna go to war against the cartels. And that's really what has to happen. You know, people my age, we've been listening to just say no, since Nancy Reagan in the 80s. You know, what do we have to lose? And all this goes back to the money, the dollars. Why are they pumping our country with poison? It makes them money. America has an insatiable appetite for drugs. And the issue is that sometimes 
you have these industries that are burgeoning, like let's say the legal cannabis industry. We know for a lot of people, this is an alternative to some of these very potent cancer medications and things like that. Forget the recreational use. But when you look at certain states, like a municipality like Washington, D.C., you can, let's per se, uh, gift marijuana, but you can't buy it. But then in Maryland now, you can. So these states are right next to each other, even though the district's not a state. And the district is just giving away that tax money to Maryland and Virginia when you have to take it. You have to evolve with the law. Now, at the same time, these states are finding out that the money is running out because the federal government is cutting back on what they're giving them. But also, they don't have the citizens making the high-paying dollar jobs that are willing to pay those taxes. You realize Arlington, Virginia, 50% of the people who live there, this is in Northern Virginia for our viewers, think the Pentagon, they make over $100,000 a year. That is 50% of the population. That is more than a combined family of two. That is actually two American families because the average wage is about $50,000 nationally for a married couple, think two kids, married couple. So you have individuals who are uh, extremely powerful. They have built their lives around things like getting security clearances to pump these huge defense contracts. When you go and you look at the Pentagon in Washington, it's not irony that right next door is Lockheed Martin, Boeing, BAE. This is like Las Vegas for defense contractors. They're not looking for a couple hundred million. They're looking for the couple hundred billion, the big one. Well, Chris, you're right. And, and let's think about this going forward, because you just mentioned a few things. You know, Republicans really ran in November on two big issues, crime and inflation. They said we have crime in our cities. Inflation is out of hand. And yet everybody thought the Republicans were going to have a big red wave. They thought that in the House we were going to have a 20 to 30 seat majority. They thought in the Senate we were going to have a two or three seat majority. It didn't happen. With that was our, those were the talking points of Republicans. That was what we said was the problem. And yet the American people didn't agree with that because they did not give us the House like they, we thought we were going to get with a 20 or 30 seat majority. Yes, they gave us back the House, but with a very slim majority. And they didn't give us the Senate. And it's one of the reasons why President Biden seems to be getting this approval rating because he's talking about other issues. What do you think of the issues moving forward? What are the things that Republicans should be talking about? You know, inflation's not going away. We know that because cities and counties and states are flush with COVID money. My community that I live in here used to be sitting on 10 or $12 million. They're sitting on $80 million, all COVID money. Our state, the state of Ohio, sitting on $30, $40 billion of COVID money. That's going to keep ramping up inflation. But the American population likes that money. In fact, one of the studies that just came out says that Americans like the idea of continuing not to work and getting paid. So what is the message from Washington? What are you hearing? What are you seeing? What are your thoughts? <laughs> well, there's a lot to digest there. I can tell you this. We do have an epidemic in this country of young men that are not working. There's about seven or eight million able-bodied males that are not in the workforce. Now, that's also a tax base that we're not getting the money from. But down the road, I think the two most significant things, the border, number one, 
and then harnessing the power of American domestic energy. We should be selling our energy, and more importantly, because the oil commodities market is such a perceived market value, we should be exporting this this oil globally to stabilize these markets and take the power away from these tyrannical regimes like Russia. Now, here domestically, we have a few things on the radar immediately. We've got a drug crisis in this country. We've got people out there ODing left and right. They're on the streets. We all know that Joe Biden is in El Paso this afternoon, and they cleaned up El Paso like Donald Trump cleaned up Washington, D.C. He just says, you out, move. It's embarrassing. It's an eyesore. We've got a homeless problem here in the nation's capital. We've got a violence problem with these homeless people who are also addicted to drugs. A lot of the the people out there can see this because they take the subways, they take the buses, and they see these people out here and they're strung out on the streets. But first and foremost, it's just like former President Trump said, if you don't have a border, you don't have a country. Let's put it this way, you know, we have to have this border sealed. We have to harness this American energy to stabilize these markets and bring the prices for Americans down. I don't think we're at the point right now where we want to go to war with Mexico. But what we really need to do is take our boot and put on the neck of Mexico and flex our muscle and tell them they need to calm down. We know that there was a prison break where they freed El Chapo's son in Juarez last week. They cannot secure their own country. It's a quasi-narco state. And guys like Matt Gates who have said it, you know, why don't we take the U.S. Navy SEALs and take them into Sinaloa? Well, the problem with that is people say, are you ready to see young men come home in body bags across the southern border? And I say, no, no one wants to see that. But in two years, they've killed 200,000 people. They're disrupting our lives. So why don't we disrupt theirs? It's a good point. Good point. And by the way, some of the things you talked about are Trump policies. It's what the American Greatness Fund actually, we believe in America first and that America first movement. And many of those are oil independence, uh, you know, securing our border, all those things you're talking about. And you brought up President Trump's, former President Trump's name a few times. I'd love to hear your thoughts from Washington, D.C. I can tell you, um, in Ohio, we call this, you know, some people say Ohio is a Republican state. It really isn't. It's a Trump state. Uh, it, uh, it has a tremendous amount of independence. Uh, almost 60% of Ohio is independence, 23% Republican, 22, 21% Democrat. It's really not a Republican state, but it is a Trump state because they loved the America first policies and principles. But in Ohio, I'm starting to hear a lot of people saying, we love President Trump, we loved his policies, but it's time to potentially move on. I'm hearing that from Republicans. I'm also hearing from Republicans, we want President Trump back. We need to get President Trump back. I'm hearing from independents saying, I like some of the ideas that President Trump had, but it's time to move on. What's kind of the thought process in, in Washington and where you're at. What are you hearing? What do you think? Well, here in the swamp, you hear a lot of different things. And what's more important about what it is is what they're not saying versus what they are saying. President Trump, 
he is the political juggernaut. He is the fundraiser. Now, everybody loves the vibe of Governor DeSantis and what he did in Florida. But let's face it, the presidency is bigger than any one man. And what Donald Trump brings to the table, let's say for a second term, would be an infrastructure of people that know now not to trust the swamp. You know, fire the FBI director, investigate the Department of Justice. Let's not forget, I've been doing this a little while now, and what a lot of people seem to forget is that this could have all been stopped, a lot of the anti-Trump sentiment and the investigations with Jeff Sessions. He should have never recused himself. They should have stopped these fake news witch hunts and stopped the American people's time, but they didn't do that. So now what you're going to see happen is Congress is going to investigate, and because you know and you've done this, Congress doesn't have the power to indict. That would be Merrick Garland under the President Joe Biden. So what we're going to have is two years of political posturing. Now, once the presidential cycle starts in 24 and Trump reemerges full force, what you're going to see and hear is this. It's going to be, do we hold these people accountable? Because when I'm elected, I'm going to put them on trial and we're going to let the people decide if they're guilty. And if they are, we're going to put them in jail. We don't care who they are, how famous they are, how powerful they are. If they've broken the law and the American people see that they should go to jail, they should pay the consequences for that. This is bigger than any one person or one family, per se. You know, this has been going on a long time. Let's, let's not forget about this little organization called the Clinton Foundation that just seemed to have gone away, right? So whatever influence peddling the Bidens are accused of, it needs to be brought out in a court. Congress is going to be able to start that ball rolling and put it into the public arena for the American people to see and evaluate themselves. Nothing will happen to these people until the next presidency. That's anybody who was affiliated with January 6th, like Stuart Rhodes, who was just convicted of seditious conspiracy to overthrow the U.S. government in 20 years, possibly uh, facing, and he wasn't even in Washington. So at the same time, I think a person that's effective and direct, like a President Trump, would say, we're going to hold these people accountable. People don't seem to give the American people a lot of credit for being able to stomach things. I think this nation is extremely strong, and we've been through a lot. We've seen dirty politicians go to jail before. I mean, people forget about William Jefferson a decade ago. They're pulling out $400,000 cash in his freezer from his apartment on Capitol Hill. And things like that have been going on in this town forever, but it's the magnitude and the level that we're seeing it now. All the way to the Oval Office, people have a lot of questions. Why are we getting involved in this war in Ukraine? How is this family aligned with certain governments internationally? They seem to care more about some of these foreign countries than they do the people in the Americans like Delaware, Texas, Florida. You know, we don't even say a lot of things like that, but it's kind of funny when you look at Corinne Jean-Pierre every day up there spinning like uh, she's Chef Emeril Lagazi with a pan in her hand. And she can't even handle a question from Peter Ducey from Fox News. How are these people going to handle foreign leaders who kill tens of thousands of people at a time? It just doesn't seem like they have what it takes. You know, you mentioned the swamp a number of times. I was there for eight years. I left because of the swamp. I really couldn't stand it. And a lot of people leave and say, I need to get out of here. And one of those was 
Governor DeSantis. I mean, I will give him credit. He left and made a decision after six years. I left after six years as well. Um, he made the decision to leave. He actually ran 100 percent as a, as a Trump person, although I will say he was a member of the Freedom Caucus, but he, he, he yielded no power in Washington. In fact, he was a pretty quiet guy. When I go back and I think about him, even in the Freedom Caucus, most people weren't aware he was a Freedom Caucus member. He was very unhappy being there. He didn't like what was going on, and he decided to make a run for governor. So he has run and won under the Trump uh, bandwagon his first time. This time he ran based on what he's done. And he's taken some of those principles and stood pretty strong against, for instance, the woke issues at, at Disney and all of these things, the teachers union. So people do like him because of his ability to stand his ground. What's interesting, though, and I have to chuckle because I see so many people that end up getting in that slot running for president like Governor DeSantis. I would have never thought that. Uh, when he was in Congress. Uh, it was He was an interesting person, but never anybody that I thought would be running in, in that lane for president, you know, four to five years later. But it was based on the Trump mentality, the America first mentality, and making sure that this wokeness is stopped. It'll be interesting to see whether he or others are able to compete with President Trump in this 2024 cycle. Well, President Trump is no doubt the juggernaut, but what I think he actually brings to the table is you know where he stands on things. With him, you know what he's get. What is the best indication of future behavior is past behavior. You know where he stands. When we were, uh, let's say, dealing with some of these governments at the border, you know, Mexico primarily, you know, he just said, hey, you've got to stop it. If you don't stop it, I'm stopping the money. So that wakes him up really quickly. But a guy like DeSantis, he does have mass appeal. And let's not forget, the reason that he's got the governorship is because President Trump supported him. I mean, MAGA base turned out for him. Those Florida voters are aligned with the Trump doctrine. Now, what he really did to put himself on a national stage that proved very effective, his record is great. It was what he did in keeping Florida open during COVID. You know, right down the streets here is NIH. You can go and listen to some of these people at the NAIAD. For all of you out there who don't speak D.C., that's National Institutes of Advanced Infectious Diseases. They call it NIAD. This is where Fauci was responsible for pumping out his COVID propaganda and misinformation. And now what we know with Twitter, it's just exploding. Somebody asked me the other day about the Twitter files and what I've said to them because of what's been going on in the House with the speaker's race. I've been paying attention to what certain people have been saying about it, and then I put it down because every time I go back to that story and I start to investigate and talk to my sources, I'm just blown away. I'm flabbergasted. So I go back to what's easy to cover, the speaker's race, because when people find out about Twitter, Twitter no doubt had an effect on the election. I mean, if people had seen Hunter Biden smoking crack on his computer before they voted, they'd say, Maybe this isn't a person that aligns with my values. And, you know, let's face it, you can't control what your kids do, but your family and how they react is a reflection of how good you are as a parent of a person. Right now, building a family is the most rebellious thing that you can do. And when you look at the Biden kids, you know, we have one person that was a veteran that succumbed to brain cancer 
and then another one that really never even got on a boat but put on a naval uniform and couldn't pass a drug test. So we see these different families and what they struggle with, but what's unique about the Biden family is most people aren't president of the United States. And then they have other people that come into play here. We've heard a lot of different things going on in that family, unconfirmed. But when you talk to some of these journalists and you see what they've been through, I think of a person like a James O'Keefe or Cheryl Atkinson, you know, where they planted child porn on her husband's computer. She has a young child. Most people should realize when the police discover something like that on the computer, you're not only arrested, but your child is also taken from you. So just like what I mentioned previously, if you really want to mess with someone, mess with their kids and see what happens. But this family is in a unique position in history because, frankly, let's let's talk about this in uh, direct American language here. Nobody ever thought Joe Biden was going to win the presidency. I know people in the mainstream media who said, and they've been doing this a lot longer than I am, that he has no chance of winning. And when I was attending the Trump events covering these rallies, this man said it to me walking with his his wife down Freedom Plaza, and he said to me, no matter how you spin it, you're never going to convince me that Joe Biden got more votes than Barack Obama. You're right. And what a great perspective. Chris, I want to thank you for coming on and talking thank you for about having me. Yeah, I want to talk about some of these issues, especially I call it the swamp perspective. You're stuck down in the swamp because you're reporting uh, from there. But it's just a different world. It's a world that I lived in for eight years. I'm glad I'm not there any longer. But we've got some interesting times ahead of us. This week will be interesting with the rules and and we've got the, as we talked, we've got the debt ceiling. A lot of things going to happen in 2023 regarding this Congress. We're, we're going to be watching. Uh, we're going to have a lot of freshmen realize they're not as powerful as they think they are because the Senate's going to shut them down. All of these things we talked about are going to be interesting. But I'm glad to see we have a House that is moving in the right direction. Um, it'll be interesting to see whatever it'll take to get our country moving in the right direction. So thank you for being on. Thank you, all your all the listeners and watchers of the American Greatness Fund, America War Room. We want to thank you. We look forward uh, to seeing you again real soon and talking about the issues in 2023 and hopefully a Congress moving forward. Thank you again. Look forward to seeing you, and God bless you all, and God bless America.